23rd August, 1942. I wonder what my child will be like. Will she be shy and timid like her mother? Or strong and intelligent like her father? I don't think I'll have to wait much longer to find out. She should be due any day now. The moon is almost full after all. Even though I wish the circumstances were different, I'm still hopeful that this child will bring some much-needed joy into the household. It's looking bad. The Japanese continue to grow in power, causing so much bloodshed in their wake. Sir said not to worry, that it would just do more harm to the baby. But how can I not? They took over Singapore, and I fear that the soldiers will come for us next, like they came for our neighbors. I feel her growing stronger inside me with every passing day. What will happen once she enters the world? How will I protect her from the horrors of war? I can't do much, but I try my best to avoid doing anything that can harm the baby. Madam complains about the rationing, but I'm thankful that there's still food to go around. I know what it truly means to have nothing, because that was my life before I got here. It isn't something one could ever forget. And yet, despite her complaining, Madam still sets aside food from her own portion. It's for the baby, she tells me. How can I refuse? I had intended to keep it a secret for as long as possible, but Madame noticed and immediately asked questions the minute I started showing signs. I was astounded by her reaction. I thought she would kick me out, but she simply looked at me and told me that I wouldn't survive a week alone in my condition. The Japanese simply take and use whoever they please, she says. It's why Sir doesn't let us leave the house and why we hide if they're in the area. I've never been stuck inside for so long before. Every day brings more terrifying news of the outside world. It's maddening, but Madam has really taken care of me throughout this pregnancy. I've been showered with advice and even a gift. It's probably the most expensive thing I have ever owned. I was told that the clock is made of merbau wood whatever that means. All I know is that this must have cost a fortune, and these are not times for frivolous purchases. I tried to return it to Madame, but she insisted that I keep it. So that's what I did. It's solid and carved so intricately with a complex design. It's beautiful and sophisticated. Just like Madame. in anticipation. It's getting harder to fall asleep. I find myself lying awake as the birds start to rise. To distract myself, I rest my ear on the clock. I try to synchronize my heartbeat to the sounds of the ticking. It's almost like I'm counting down the days till I get to meet my baby. My darling. I don't know what the future holds for the both of us, but at least I know I won't be alone.
Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to the Rumah Mabawang podcast series. It's Iza again, and I hope that you're all doing well, staying healthy, and keeping safe. It is now layer five, our grand finale, the final chapter to this book. But before we get started, I'm sure you all know the drill by now. So, one final recap session of all our episodes and all that we've covered so far. Let's get started. I found a bunch of old journals in my family home storeroom. They were in a box labeled with my great-grandmother's name, and yet the journals didn't belong to her. They'd been written by someone called Nora. I later learned she was a housekeeper that used to work for my great-grandparents in the 1930s to the 1940s. So I decided to tell her story. She was hella superstitious, and as a result, I started digging into these superstitions and discussing them. I've covered origin stories, histories, context, evolutions, and modern implications of these bad boys. We've also followed Nora through ups and downs, and we last ended with her hiding a pregnancy as the Japanese invaded Malaya. And now that you're all caught up again, let's get on with it, shall we? So it's been several months into the Japanese occupation in World War II now. Things are rough. Food is scarce, Singapore's been conquered, and people are being disappeared and killed. The Japanese soldiers were infamous for plundering and for forcing local girls and women to become their comfort women, their sex slaves. Which is why many women and girls would disguise themselves as boys. They would cut their hair short and stop wearing makeup and dress up in men's clothing. Some even went as far as dirtying themselves on purpose to deter the soldiers. And they would hide, just like Nora and my great-grandmother did. They were stuck inside. Kinda like how so many of us are right now due to COVID-19. Huh, what are the odds? <laughs> but yeah, on top of everything, Nora was also dealing with a pregnancy. And as to be expected, she tried to stay away from anything that would have had any adverse effect on the baby. Which is also, of course, decent parenting on her part. As we know from the last layer, there are so many do's and don'ts for expecting women. While I don't know for sure if Nora did the rituals, but I do know for a fact that she would have if she had known about them. But in the journal entry, she also mentioned the full moon being days away, and I was confused. But apparently, that's a very real belief that many people seem to have. It's that more babies are born during the full moon, even though there seems to be no scientific evidence that backs this up. Although, apparently, it's a thing for people to get a little wild during the full moon. Like, medical personnel claim that ERs are a little fuller and people are more likely to be a little unhinged around that time of the month. I mean, who hasn't felt like going a little feral when they see the full moon in all her glory? No? Just me? Alrighty then, moving on. But what exactly is it with pregnant women and the moon supposedly affecting their babies in the womb? The Aztecs believed that if an expected mother were to look at the moon, the child she was carrying would develop a cleft palate. In order to ward this off, they'd wear something metallic to deflect the moon's rays. And carrying on with the whole celestial bodies theme, there is another belief that originates from India, where eclipses are bad news. In India, they're seen as bad omens and precautions are put in place to protect pregnant women from this event. Windows are covered up with newspaper or thick fabric to ward off the eclipse rays, and to keep them from entering the house. Pregnant women are to avoid using sharp objects, 
bathing and even sitting with their legs crossed for the duration of the eclipse, they're supposed to rest and fast until it's passed. In Hindu mythology, it's believed that an eclipse is caused by the serpent demons Rahu and Ketu swallowing the sun in a bid to stifle the light that provides life. Some Hindu communities in Asia will bang pots and pans or set of fireworks to scare away these demons. And there are also other beliefs about how the timing of the birth affects the baby. There is a belief that when the baby is being born during the moon's rising, it will be a girl. And there is also a saying, Monday's child is fair of face, Tuesday's child is full of grace, Wednesday's child is full of woe, Thursday's child has far to go, Friday's child is loving and giving, Saturday's child works hard for its living, but the child that is born on the Sabbath day is bonny and blithe and good and gay. I mean, not to brag, but I was born on a Wednesday, and full of woe I truly am. How about you though? Does your day's saying apply to you? Of course, there's no evidence that these two beliefs are actually real, but they're good fun. But while I was doing all of this research, it hit me. I realized that my grandmother was actually born a couple of days after the entry. But Nora never mentioned my great-grandmother being pregnant. You would think she would have. Like, surely it would have been of some importance, right? Relatives would say that my grandmother was a miracle baby, that after years of trying, my great-grandparents finally had her, and just after the Japanese invaded too. Grandma says her mother would call her special, her very own good luck charm. And I actually finally figured out why. When the journals ended just like that, I went digging through the box again. Maybe I'd missed something, anything. And I had. I just didn't realize it. I thought it was a bookmark, but it was actually a letter folded up tight and wedged into the final journal. My great-grandfather had written it for Nora. And then it all finally came together as I read it. I'm sure you can guess by now or at least you have an inkling. I didn't realize it, but from the moment I started reading the journals, I just knew. He had written it after her death, decades later and just before his own. He had written it out of guilt. Guilt for cheating on his wife with Nora, for Nora's death during childbirth as she gave birth to my grandmother, and for not teaching their child about her own biological mother. So I guess Nora was my biological great-grandmother all along, and my great-grandfather was her mysterious lover. It sounds like a telenovela, almost, but shit happens, and now I kind of regret finding these journals. But it makes sense. I should have seen it earlier. Nora always did say my great-grandmother wanted children but couldn't seem to have them. When Nora died, it was unfortunate, but my great-grandmother got what she always wanted, a child. And with the war and everything, Paperwork wasn't really on anyone's minds. No one would have even noticed or realized. Everything is all fuzzy and it gets lost in the woodwork. My great-grandparents didn't have a child, and then they did. Then I also realized the clock I'd found in the same box, the one I'd found a while back, had been the very same one Nora had been gifted. 
it's stuck at nine o'clock. See, the thing is, when someone dies in a household, some people stop the clock sometimes. It seems to have originated from Germany and Great Britain. They believed that when a person died, time stood still for them, and a new existence started without time. To permit time to continue was to invite the spirit of the deceased to remain and haunt the living. So, stopping the time allowed the deceased to move on. The birth had been long and complicated, according to my great-grandfather's letter, and due to the imposed curfew, they couldn't get help from a midwife. And the stopped clock helped no time of death. Nor as time of death. But I've also heard that gifting clocks is a huge no-no in Chinese culture. So I was a little confused. Apparently, it's because the phrase to give a clock is a homophone of a phrase for attending a funeral in Cantonese. Plus, it denotes counting down one's days and symbolizes running out of time. It's seen as bad luck or a curse. It's right up there with not gifting anything sharp such as knives or scissors because it's thought to sever relationships. Vikings wouldn't gift daggers or knives but they would sell it to friends for the measly price of one coin because it's technically not a present then. Some extra superstitious folks recommended repeating the rhyme. If you love me as I love you, no life can cut our love in two. And who knew there could be so many bad luck gifts? Like shoes! Because apparently, they signify that the receiver would walk away from you. Yet, if you never give anyone a gift of shoes in your life, it means that you will be doomed to go shoeless in the afterlife. It's kind of a difficult choice. But yes, as always, different beliefs lead to different courses of action. So, my great-grandmother couldn't have possibly known, right, that gifting a clock was bad luck? Nora herself said that she didn't believe much in superstitions at the time. But no matter what, I know my great-grandmother loved my grandmother and raised her with the greatest care. I know this because my grandmother always speaks fondly of her and loves showing off her pictures. She always gets weepy around her death anniversary and she'll patiently wait in the garden for a bird to drop by. Without fail, a crow or a raven will show up. However, she does feed them though, and corvids are known to be smart enough to recognize a friend. So, I do believe it has something to do with that. And yet, she always takes it as a sign that her mother visited. Blackbirds are normally associated with death, but they are also believed to bring messages from our dead loved ones. Odin and Norse god had two ravens who flew all over the world, then returned to whisper what they'd seen into his ears. So you see, all across history and cultures, people have looked to the heavens for signs. Since birds fly and have such high vantage points, people perceive them as messengers of the gods or the fates. Some people take it a step further and interpret birds as omens. Augury is the art of interpreting birds as omens and has been around since before the ancient Romans. We do be rhyming out here, but yes, they would observe birds, their appearances and their behavior, and in turn interpret the auspices, the bird signs. Sometimes it would be auspicious, while other times it would not. Nowadays, it isn't called augury anymore, but ornithomancy, and is practiced all around the world. People interpret the birds and their signs and provide explanations for things in life. Like, for example, 
A bird pecking at your window is a reminder to stop and pay attention to details in your life. You may have neglected or forgotten something important. And another example would be, a bird flying into your window could be a sign that you're about to encounter an obstacle of some kind, or that you're headed in the wrong direction, or that you're going to go through a transition of some kind. Or, it could literally just be because the poor thing did not see the glass. I wonder what the birds chirp chirping away outside my window mean. Probably that I should be sleeping. Huh. But yes, it's a common belief that birds were messengers to the afterlife because of their ability to soar through the air to the homes of the gods. Birds in general became harbingers of death. For example, you may all know this, owls are often seen as bad omens and are related to death. Maybe the birds that kept Nora up towards the end of her life were really an omen of some sort. Some divine sign that death was coming, unfortunately. Thinking back on my grandmother and her belief in the birds, I always found it sweet. But now all I see is Nora and her little belief. She never got to raise her child, but my great-grandmother seemed to become superstitious after Nora died. And so my grandmother had been raised to follow in her biological mother's footsteps without even realizing. Like, my grandmother is already coaching me on pregnancy things. Not quite sure how to break it to her that she's probably a decade early with these tips and tricks. But yeah, it gets you to thinking. I mean, will superstitions die out with the modern advancement of the world? Some might say that with widespread education, it might make people more skeptical of these beliefs. Or are superstitions something we will always cling to and so they will survive, but just in different forms? I personally think it's the latter. They tie us back to our culture, our history, and our traditions. They may seem like silly beliefs and rituals on the surface, but once you dig deep, you find the mythology and the folklore and the meaning behind it all. And honestly, who doesn't like learning about this kind of stuff? Like, for example, how the color black is unlucky because in India the color is associated with the Lord Shani. Like, maybe your aunt or your uncle tells you to not do something or to do something and you've always wondered why. Well, you can always ask. And I'm sure the story behind it is super great. And if they don't know themselves, you can go looking. And now you have a brand new conversation topic for the next big family gathering. See, superstitions give meaning, explanation, and structure to the unexplainable. They offer us a modicum of comfort in a harsh world because we have something to believe in. We make our own good luck charms and do our cleansing rituals that help boost our morale and remove the negativity in our lives. Superstitions allow us the illusion of control and sometimes that's not such a bad thing if it helps us get through the day. Once you examine them and your belief in them, you actually discover so much. Just like I did while researching for this podcast. <laughs> of course, I found it a little too much, and I sincerely hope no family members that are listening to this are going to snitch to my grandmother before I can explain everything gently to her. But yeah, I hope this podcast was helpful to you in any way. Maybe it got you to thinking about superstitions you or your friends or family follow and why that is. Maybe it was just informative, or maybe it was just fun. Either way, I hope you enjoyed this podcast just as much as I loved sharing this insane journey with you. Well, 
The layers have all been peeled back and I'm all out of onions. I've told Nora's story and we actually solved the case. We found out who she was. My actual great-grandmother. Ooh, case actually solved. Haters will say it's fake, but you can always do that by dropping a comment at our Insta at, at @rumahmumbawang. Now, do drop by and let us know what you think. Any thoughts or did y'all sniff out the infidelity from a mile away? Honestly, could have told me if you had. But yes, thank you so much for tuning into our final episode and for joining us along the ride. So, I guess this is it. One last goodbye. And without further ado, I bid you a good morning, good day, good evening, and good night. Stay safe, everyone. This is your host, Iza, signing off. Farewell, until next time. <laughs>